So hello and welcome to this month's Journal Club podcast. Uh, joining me today as always is uh, Professor Peter Cameron, Academic Lead at the Alfred Emergency and Trauma Centre and Miles Sri Ganeshan, Research Fellow at the Alfreds. Thanks very much for taking part today, guys. So this month we had four papers discussing ketamine nebulization, uh, antivirals for outpatient management of COVID, the utility of rapid antigen tests against COVID and the risks of not anticoagulating patients with subsegmental PEs. So let's get started. Paper one. This is a paper which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, by Bernal et al. And the title of the paper was Molnupiravir, which I'll be calling Molnu for short from now on, for oral treatment of COVID-19 in non-hospitalized patients. So the clinical question here was, is Molnu superior to placebo in preventing hospitalization and death through day 29 in patients with mild to moderate COVID-19? So what did researchers do? Well, this was a double-blind parallel group randomized placebo-controlled trial. Patients were enrolled from May 26, 2021 to October 2, 2021. There was 107 sites in 20 countries. The population they chose was non-hospitalized adults with mild to moderate COVID-19 who had their infection confirmed in the lab within five days and the onset of signs and symptoms within five days and at least one risk factor for development of severe illness from COVID-19. The intervention was Molnu 800 milligrams twice daily for five days. And the control was placebo for identical pills twice daily for five days. Their outcome was a primary outcome composite of hospitalization for any cause over 24 hours of acute care in hospital or any similar facility and death through day 29. So results. In the interim analysis, the Molnu group had a lower risk of hospitalization or death through day 29, 7.3% compared to 14.1% in the placebo group. The treatment difference of 6.8%. However, the treatment difference was much lower in the full trial. The model group at 6.8% participants were hospitalized or died through day 29, with one death being reported in the model group. The placebo group, 9.7% participants were hospitalized or died through day 29, and there's only nine deaths in the placebo group. The treatment difference of 2.9%. Uh, so all in all, treatment with model resulted in one less death and hospitalization for every 34 patients treated. So the authors concluded that in this trial, oral model was found be effective for the treatment of COVID-19 without evidence of safety concerns when initiated within five days after the onset of signs and symptoms in this population of non-hospitalized unvaccinated adults who are at risk for progression to severe disease. So Peter, vaccinated patients were excluded from this study, which limits the generalizability. Um, it was also underpowered, yet the evidence from the task force recommendation for Manu have recommended this in certain patients. What are your thoughts on this? There's now a sort of, you know, a multitude of potential treatments. Uh, we, you know, two years ago, we had nothing. Now we've got like, I don't know, maybe up to 10 different treatments that we can use. And one of the problems is it's such a rapidly evolving area. You know, now I think in Australia, over 90% of the population are, are double vaxxed and maybe two thirds are triple vaxxed. You know, the relevance of these studies to the clinical environment becomes a lot less. And then there's the at-risk groups. So when you look at the at-risk groups, you know, there's obviously things like, you know, diabetes and so forth, which are more common. But any of the less common groups, it's the numbers get too small to make any comment about. So we sort of 
bundle it all together and say at risk, but they're not necessarily, a, well, they're definitely not an homogenous group. And the other thing about this was it looked very impressive in the interim analysis, you know, like more or less half the hospital admissions. And then when they get to the interim analysis, it starts to look a little more shaky, although still a, a positive result. So basically, when this was first, you know, the results first came out, it, it looked like this might be a chance you know, to have a sort of an oral agent that was readily available for GPs. But as time's gone on, it really looks like it's going to be a sort of third line agent that you might try after you've excluded other possible treatments, because it's only useful in the first few days anyway. So in the end, I'm not sure that it's been used in anger in Australia yet, apart from in trials. Um, So I, I think it's not going to be part of the armamentarium that we routinely use, certainly in the ED, uh, maybe in some specialised units with some specialised subgroups on the basis of minimal evidence. Hmm. Uh, Miles, there's important factors to consider, and the researchers mentioned it as well at the end in terms of teratogenicity, and the contraception was advised for women for four days and, and men then for three months after uh, treatment. You'd have to imagine there'd be some compliance issues with that. Do you reckon that the risks outweigh the benefit? Um, so that's the that's the thing, and with this with research surrounding COVID, that's always the problem that it's kind of a bit of a ever changing field. The yep, I will concede there are some possible safety issues, and as you said, mainly with people having to be on contraception and the long term effects and so on. And I agree with Peter initially when you read this, it all looks promising, um, and uh, it's great the idea that we'd have a something that we can give people pre hospital to stop them getting sick, but as said, now this is a done in an unvaccinated population um, with people vaccinated. We don't know what the benefit would be with those potential side effects, which you kind of alluded to there. It means it's difficult to apply what we've got here going forward. Yeah, great. And, and Peter, just like in terms of the, there's more women randomised to the mono group than the control group. And I think globally, men have more men have died than women in the case fatality ratios, but it's 2.5 uh, higher, times higher than men compared to women. If, if women are less at risk than men for death and hospitalisation, that could potentially bias the results in favour of the Manu here, do you think? It could, yeah. I mean, this is where, you know, you need multiple trials with multiple population groups to fully understand where these things fit in. And uh, as Miles has said, you know, this is so evolving so rapidly, like the, the, the populations at risk even are changing. So, you know, I mean, I, we've got quite a few treatments to choose from now. The issue for the certainly the National COVID Task Force is is prioritising which one you would use ahead of another. So it's a sort of a simple algorithm for the likes of me. So I don't have to remember the 500 trials that have been done to make a, a, a an informed decision. So I, yeah, I'm at the end of the day, I'm going to look up the table and see where it fits. You know, like the amount of information is just yeah. unbelievable, but it's still not enough really to make a you know, for this patient in front of me who's, you know, 31, a little bit overweight, probably not pregnant, but, you know, maybe has diabetes, like, what am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You have to look at all your options. Um, okay, great. Well, well, we'll move on to the second paper. Paper two. The second paper we have was published in the Annals. It was a comparison of nebulized ketamine at three different dosing regimes for treating uh, painful conditions in the emergency department. This is a prospective randomized double-blind clinical trial. So the question of the study, um, which was addressed, was which of the following doses is more effective, uh, 0.75, 1 or 1.5 milligrams per kg? 
So like I said, this was a prospective randomized double-blind trial comparing three doses of nebulized ketamine administered through a breathing actuated nebulizer in the adult emergency department uh, to patients aged 18 years or older with moderate to severe acute and chronic pain. The primary outcome included the difference in pain scores on an 11-point numeric rating score uh, scale between all three groups at 30 minutes. Secondary outcomes then included the need for rescue analgesia, so additional doses of nebulized ketamine or IV morphine, and adverse events in each group at 30 and 60 minutes. So on to the results. It was 120 subjects, 40 per group were enrolled. All doses were demonstrated to be clinically significant in terms of pain reduction, and there was no additional benefit to the higher doses. So to add context to their secondary outcomes, um, the adverse events and the need for rescue analgesia, the authors compared these data to their prior studies on IV ketamine and morphine, things that we in the ED are much more comfortable with. And clinical pain reductions were on par with the degree of pain relief seen with IV ketamine and morphine. So in conclusion, the authors stated that they found no difference between all three doses of ketamine administered through the breath-actuated nebulizer for short-term treatment of moderate to severe pain in the emergency department. So um, this is a study which gives more options for analgesia in the ED, in the ED which is good, but not necessarily all generalised with all the EDs, as we don't all have this breath-actuated equipment. What do you think of this uh, study, Miles? I like the uh, of finding other ways to treat people's pain in the emergency department. So I was, was excited to read this one. Yeah, so I, I appreciate that the authors are building on their previous work and making comparisons to, to work they've done before. But when we're talking about nebulized ketamine, we're talking about something which we don't conventionally use, we don't necessarily have access to. So what I, what I really want to know is, are they going to give me kind of conclusive evidence to, to change my practice or to start doing something different? This study for me doesn't do that. So it tells me that there's there's no significant difference in um, analgesic control between three different doses of nebulized ketamine. It's possible that there's those different subgroups are not adequately powered, but really that's not a question that I want to know the answer to. Um, in terms of ketamine and using ketamine, what I want to know is how does it compare to giving IV morphine or IV ketamine or a combination of the two um, and intranasal ketamine which this study doesn't tell me. And also in terms of the outcomes, uh, it's not just the degree of pain relief I want to know about. I want to know about time to discharge. I want to know about the side effects going forward. And I want to know about patient satisfaction. Is this kind of an acceptable thing to them or for them? So it was a paper that I was interested to read, but um, I think some more work in, in this area is probably required, which is what the what the authors concluded themselves. Yeah, so it's not going to change my practice, but interesting. Yeah. And Peter, we're used to ketamine in paediatric emergency medicine, and, and this seems like a useful non-invasive way to administer analgesia. You reckon that this would have been more beneficial in a different, younger population, probably? There's there's a lot of, oh, not a lot, there's a couple of studies on intranasal uh, ketamine. It does seem to work. But the question, I, I think, my, as Miles has pointed out, I'm not sure they got the right comparators. So, And the other thing is nebula, I'm not sure exactly how they're driving the nebulizer, but if it's generating aerosolized gas beyond the patient, then in, in the sort of COVID environment, uh, it's going to be less popular anyway. You know, we've stopped using salbutamol and whatever via nebulization. So intranasal squirt of ketamine has certainly been used. To be honest, in an adult, I would be probably putting a drip in and titrating ketamine with morphine uh, as appropriate to, to, to get the analgesia. You know, the other thing, if it's if it's only sort of not too bad a pain, then they generally, you know, like every analgesic study, most of the patients get better anyway. So I'm not sure 
whether these patients sort of got better in spite or because of the drug. And that's always a problem with these studies, unless you've got a placebo control. And, and you know, placebo control is always difficult ethically. Yeah, I suppose if I'm giving nebulized ketamine to my shoulder dislocation, was the reduction of the ketamine that <laughs> improved the pain? Like. <laughs> but even just putting them on a bed, uh, elevating it, you know, all those sorts of things uh, make a big difference to, to pain. Okay. And there's a few other things with this paper, like it was this convenient sample, there's a small sample size, it's a very short duration of study, and there was a lack of standardization of the inhalation time as well. So a few limitations that went with this, uh, but yeah, uh, interesting, interesting study nonetheless. Okay, so we'll move on to the third paper. Paper three. This paper is titled The Risk of Recurrent Venous Thromboembolism in Patients with Subsegmental PE Managed Without Anticoagulation. So the clinical question here was, are patients with subsegmental PE at low risk for recurrent VTE and need clinical surveillance or is anticoagulation indicated? So what did they do? This was a, a multi-centre international prospective cohort study evaluating clinical outcomes for low risk patients with single and multiple, uh, multiple isolated short segment, uh, subsegmental PE managed without anticoagulation. Patients were diagnosed with isolated uh, subsegmental PEs who had bilateral lower extremity ultrasound and patients with no DVT and ultrasound were managed without anticoagulation. Patients who were hospitalized, pregnant, had active cancer, history of VTE, hypoxia, or an indication for long-term anticoagulation were excluded. The primary outcome here was recurrent VTE during the 90-day follow-up period. So in regards to the results, recruitment in the study ended early because of the predefined stopping rule, which was met after 292 of the projected 300 patients, which were enrolled. And overall, 266 patients were included in the study. So the primary outcome of the VTE during the 90-day follow-up period occurred in eight patients with a cumulative incidence of 3.1%. And this incidence rate was higher than expected, but similar to a prior systemic, uh, systematic review of patients with more proximal pulmonary embolism receiving anticoagulation. Another results of note were that the patients with multiple isolated subsegmental PEs had higher incidence of recurrent VTEs compared to those with single isolated subsegmental PEs, and patients over the age of 65 had higher rates of recurrent VTEs compared to those under the age of 65. So the authors concluded here that the patients with isolated single or multiple subsegmental PEs who do not have deep proximal DVTs at higher than expected rates of recurrent VTEs. And this has an implication for management of these patients with anticoagulation in clinical practice. So Peter, I'll just come to you first. So the current advice from the American College of Chest Physicians, their, their clinical practice guidelines recommends clinical surveillance over anticoagulation in selected patients with these subsegmental PEs without lower extremity DVTs who have a low risk for recurrent VTEs. So does this paper change the game, do you think? Well, I guess certainly at the Alfred, we've been very conservative or aggressive, if you want, whichever way you want to put it, uh, we, we generally anticoagulate everyone. And as such, it will make no difference to our practice. With regard to, I mean, it's probably more relevant in terms of how long you would anticoagulate them for and how closely you would monitor them. So at the moment, if I found a subsegmental PE, I would anticoagulate them and send them home and uh, refer them to a clinic uh, for follow-up. But the degree of monitoring and follow-up, I guess, is the question in my mind, and, and I'm not clear on that. The other thing to remember with this is that the background rate of PE in the community is not known. So uh, if you were to follow up a 1,000 people, a certain number of those would have asymptomatic PEs on an ongoing basis that we probably don't know about. And if you did CTPAs on them all every three months, you'd probably find quite a few. I don't think you'd get 3%, but you might get 
you know, 1% or something like that. So again, the control arm is tricky in these observational studies and interpreting what that 3% means. But I think from my end, you know, if you're being medico-legally conservative, I would still uh, anticoagulate, but I'm not sure whether it's for three, six, 12 months and how often I would review them. Yeah, well, like, like you said, the background community rates aren't, aren't really known. I suppose we're doing more and more CTPAs, um, so we're finding more and more of these PEs with query significance. Would you be more nervous sending someone home without anticoagulation after reading this? That's not our kind of convention where we practice. So so for me, in terms of my mindset, we would just anticoagulate all these patients, understand it's in the guidelines in the States. But uh, having said that, looking looking at this trial, it's a bit of a shame because it, it's a very difficult study to conduct. It was done over several years because subsegmental PE is not all that common. Or, sorry, they are common, but we don't pick them up all that commonly. And I think we from from the data that they provided and the study they've done, it suggests that we have to anticoagulate these patients. But I think that if we if we were to kind of get some more granular data, so in terms of if we looked at patients who had transient provoking factors, so if they've just been on a flight or they've just been hospitalized or something like that, then maybe those patients wouldn't necessarily need to be anticoagulated, but we haven't got the the data from from this paper. And that would be that would be very difficult data to to get hold of. So from a general point of view, based on this paper and based on the convention I'm used to, we'd be anticoagulating these patients. And Peter, like the additional data that the researchers put up about the patients with multiple isolated subsequent PEs and patients over the 65-year threshold ha- having greater likelihood of getting current VTAs, it does raise the possibility of like potentially tailoring your treatment to the patient in front of you. Do you think that, like, I mean, it's obviously more research needed, but um, it's an interesting thought that you could you know, in, uh, tailor your treatment to patient body. Yeah, and the other thing you didn't say was the risk side. So, you know, once you get over 65 and you're 95 and you're having falls, 3% risk from a sub and a further subsegmental PE might be a lot less than a 10% risk from a subdural from a fall. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's our job is to, to balance risks. One thing we don't do very much, or we don't do very much, we don't do very systematically is ultrasound the lower limbs. And I think we probably should be doing more of that in a systematic way because it does does help to stratify the risk. Okay, great. Uh, We'll move on to our final paper. Paper 4. This paper is titled SARS-CoV-2 Rapid Antigen Testing in the Healthcare Sector, a Clinical Prediction Model for Identifying False Negative Results. So the aim of this study was to identify different clinical predictors for false negative results of rapid antigen tests determined by positive PCR as a reference standard in a real-world multi-centered patient cohort and to develop a corresponding prediction model. So in this multi-centered trial, patients with documented paired results of rapid antigen tests and PCR between October 1st, 2020 and January 31st, 2021 were retrospectively analyzed regarding clinical findings. The variables included demographics, laboratory values, and specific symptoms. And these three models were evaluated using Bayesian logistic regression. So the results. The initial data uh, contained 4,076 patients. An overall sensitivity and specificity of the rapid antigen test was 62.3% and 97.6%. 2,997 cases with negative rapid antigen tests, so uh, 120 of the false negatives and true negatives were 2,877 underwent further evaluation after removal of cases with missing data. The best performing model for predicting a false negative rapid antigen test 
contains 10 variables yielding an area under the curve of 0.971. The most important variables for model performance with respect to the Bayesian factor were leukocyte count, fever, breathing frequency, dyspnea, and musculoskeletal symptoms. The variables high leukocyte count and high platelet count showed a negative estimate, which means that COVID-19 in the study was rather associated with leukopenia and thrombocytopenia. So the conclusions, as per the authors, false negative uh, rapid antigen test uh, results can be accurately identified through 10 routinely available variables. Implementation of a prediction model in addition to the rapid antigen tests in a clinical care can provide decision guidance for initiating appropriate hygiene measures and therefore helps avoiding nosecombing infections. So, Peter, I suppose this paper throws into question the utility of asymptomatic surveillance rapid antigen tests. I'm a bit over COVID, to be honest. I'm finished with it. I'm still <laughs> finished with it. Two papers this month that killed me. <laughs> I think this is an interesting paper at a point in time. One of the problems, I guess, is this is a test that, that's not perfect. It's a bit like the D-dimer or whatever. And if you use it the right way, in inverted commas, uh, as in you've got a pretest probability and you've got a test that's actually, when it says it's positive, it generally is, then it's a sort of useful test for that. But the problem is that there's, if you're just using the test by itself, it's got about a 40% false negative rate. And thus, the way we use it often clinically is, you know, to sort of, well, certainly a couple of the hospitals I work at, it's used to sort of say, oh, this person's low risk for COVID. Well, if it's a 50-50 chance, it's not exactly low risk. The other thing about this is this was done in Germany where they're generally pretty good at this sort of stuff. I mean, I hate to stereotype, but, you know, they're, they're straight up and down with regard to the way they do things. And if you sort of go to the general community, the likelihood of it being done the way the test manufacturers want it to be done is about zip. So what I'm getting at is the accuracy is like to, likely to be a lot lower in the general community. So even with the sort of Germanic approach to testing, it's still not all that impressive, but it does show that if you use clinical information with a test that's not that good, you can come up with an answer that's not that far from the truth. But you're still going to, you know, if you're dealing with, say, admitting a patient to the ward and putting them in amongst a whole lot of other people who are immunosuppressed or whatever, you're still going to have to do a PCR. So it's not very helpful at a hospital level. At a community level, as I said, I'm a bit over the whole thing, and I, I suspect that we'll stop doing rat tests in the next month or two. So I, I think it's it's time as a test is very limited. Yeah, I hope, I hope you're right. Miles, there, there was a few issues just with methodology, I found, between the data being collected retrospectively and then data was missing as well. Also, the fact that the PCR was used as a reference standard, and that's, neither, that's not 100% sensitive or specific either. So what did you make of how the study was conducted? kind of the same as the other COVID study. It just hasn't been able to keep up with the moving landscape of COVID. I think conducting as a retrospective study, I think that what was practically possible um, had the PCR results for the patients done as routine care along with the rat test. So um, I think it was reasonable to, to look at all of that. But with that, as you said, there is some missing data. It does, for me, it hasn't, we already kind of know that these factors are things that indicate that someone probably does have COVID. So these blood tests that they've They've demonstrated in these symptoms. So it, it's kind of just confirming what we've been practicing intuitively um, in terms of trusting rat tests. But going forward, it's kind of Peter says it's things have changed. So we've got a new variant, which, which this doesn't take into account. We've got changing incidences, which would change the results of this, pa this, uh, this paper as well. 
And then going forward uh, into our Australian winter, we're going to have other viruses going around as we go back to kind of pre-pandemic behaviors, which are going to mimic a lot of these blood tests and a lot of these symptoms, which means that what they've proposed wouldn't be applicable. So interesting, but as Peter says, I'm pretty over COVID as well. I'm not sure that we can apply this going forward. Well, it's finishing on a very positive note there with the <laughs> warning about the current. <laughs> okay, well, look, thanks very much for joining me today, guys. Um, that was great. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you next month's Journal Club podcast. So take care.